0: There we go. Okay, so turn with me to uh, Psalm 43 as we continue through the book of Psalms. And um, if I was going to name what we're doing here, I would say this is real and raw worship or real and raw uh, communication with the Lord. This these psalms, every one of them, have, presents sort of a different angle at how the people are approaching God. Uh, what's the problem in the person's life that are writing the psalm? And uh, what we get is uh, a way in which people relate to the Lord. And uh, And sometimes we relate to the Lord in our, is this a word? I don't even know, but I'll say it. In our rawness, I mean, we're just so raw and hurting or struggling or victorious or whatever. We come at him from a lot of different angles. But really, before I even begin, the trick, so to speak, to the whole Christian life is recognizing that you're not the center of the universe. Let me just lay that out there. And that the Lord is the center of the universe and that we revolve around him. And lots of people treat God as if he revolves around us. And so I think the Psalms, in many ways, is, in a, is a showing us how we get back to that place where the Lord is where he should be, at the center. And, uh, and really, that's a definition of worship. One definition, definition of worship is just merely seeing God where he should be seen, high and lifted up. Almighty God, the center of the universe, and seeing us in relation to who God is. You know, many people treat God like he's our butler. God, here I am doing my thing, and I want you to make sure you bless everything in my life. When it's totally backwards, and that's where we get into lots of trouble. So, let's begin at Psalm 43. Psalm 43 is closely tied to Psalm 42. In fact, in some of the Hebrew texts, they're connected. They're one Psalm. Uh, But the editor, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to break this up. But one commentator has said this Psalms 42, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are probably separate Psalms linked by a common problem. And guess what the common problem is? Spiritual depression. You ever felt spiritually depressed? Well, 42 and 43 are your Psalms to take a look at if you get to that place. Dryness, no life. You don't have a heart that's bubbling over with the Lord's joy. Well, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are for you. Let's look at it real quick. Vindicate me, O God. That word means clear me or judge me. David was Or I shouldn't say David. (laughs) Many of these are David, but we don't know who wrote this psalm. But the psalmist here is saying, I'm hurting, I'm struggling, I'm spiritually depressed. I want you to do your work and judge me, Lord, because it feels like others are against me. And I know that if you look, you'll see that it isn't because of anything I've done. Vindicate me, O God the 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 uh, thought being because I will be justified in the vindication and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Now, some people, and you're going to need to know this for several of the Psalms. Do you know in the Kings that Assyria was a major superpower in the 700s B.C.? And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians took out the northern kingdom of Israel, 10 of the 12 tribes. And then, in other places of the Bible, it tells us that after a while, the Assyrians came after the southern kingdom, and they actually took 14. Now think about this. They took 14 fortified cities, in the southern kingdom of Judah, and then they come right up to the gates of Jerusalem, and the military people of uh, uh, um, Assyria taunt the people right on the walls of Jerusalem and yell in there and say, hey, your king, King Hezekiah, doesn't know what he's doing. He's putting you in jeopardy. He's not... uh, um, uh, bowing down to us, uh, surrendering to us. He hasn't made an alliance with us. And so you folks are going to pay for what this guy's doing. So just come on out and make a long story longer. They prayed and they asked the Lord and they trusted God that he would do the battle for him, for them. And an angel came and destroyed 185,000 people of the Assyrians, and they were beat back from the city of Jerusalem. Okay, I'm telling you that because some people, even in this psalm, believe that's the backdrop. But as, more, as we continue in many of the other psalms, that will be the backdrop. Because when he says, I plead my cause against an ungodly nation, many people believe he's talking about that Assyrian threat. Now remember, the enemy came up to the walls. Aaron taught us in Proverbs 18 that God is our strong tower on Sunday. They came right up to the walls. And then what does an enemy always do? Your enemy of your soul does it too. They take jabs at the king. Did God really say you couldn't eat of that tree? Did he really say that? He wouldn't deprive you of that. Did God really say that he'll never leave you nor forsake you? Why do you feel so lonely right now? That's what the enemy does, folks. And he goes on and on and on and on, and he won't stop. So think of that backdrop as we go through some of these psalms. Here he says, plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. There were nations coming against whoever's writing this psalm. There were men coming against whoever wrote this psalm. For you are the God of my strength. You know, I think somehow we think uh, in Christian circles, we shouldn't be strong. And the answer to that is, yes, we certainly should be strong, but not in our own strength. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. When you are weak, he is strong. He works through vessels that understand who they are and depend upon the strength of the Lord. And here he says, you are the God of my strength. Isn't that great? Why do you cast me off? Why do you cast me off? Lord, it almost feels like you're casting me off. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Lord, why is the enemy beating me? Oh, or it seems like he's beating us or getting close to beating us. But watch this. This is how, the, how he turns it around. This is how he pivots. Oh, send out your light and your truth, and it always starts there. It always starts there. You go, well, my life is spiritually depressed. Pray and ask other people to pray for you that God's light and truth would lead them in their journey back to the joy of the Lord is my strength. Nehemiah 8. Look, oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them lead me. Let them lead me. Watch this. Isn't that great? The light and the truth of God leads us. Watch this. You've already studied this. Go over to Psalm 23, verse 6. Guess what follows you? (laughs) You know it probably without even going there. Look at this. When you have a relationship with the Lord, light Isn't that beautiful? Light and truth go before you, and goodness and and mercy follow you all the days of your life. You say, well, I don't feel that way. Well, that's a dead rock solid truth. Jan's going to be teaching this week on spiritual disciplines. So I'm not going to steal her thunder, but... What does God use to make us more Christ-like? People, circumstances, and the disciplines. And sometimes your circumstances aren't great. In fact, they can be, according to human terms, horrible, your circumstances. But through it all, the Lord is showing you that he's leading you in light and truth and following it up with goodness and mercy, and he's right there in the middle of it with you. Isn't that great? And so, Psalm 46, he pivots when he remembers that his light, or the Lord's light and truth, lead him. And then he says, if they lead me, where is it leading me to? To the holy hill. What's that? That's Jerusalem, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the presence of the Lord was. Where they would go to the tabernacle and worship a heart that's been led out, led out by light or the, or the light of God and his truth begin to be people of worship. Even when the enemy is close. Are you getting it? Even when the circumstances look like you're going to be overrun. They were on the walls of Jerusalem. Then I will go to the altar of God to God, my exceeding joy. Wow, my exceeding joy on the on the harp I will praise you O God my God. Now, some people believe this is David. We're not exactly sure. Remember, I'm just giving you the different scenarios and here's one reason because this guy could play a harp. But then he asks this, why are you cast down O my soul and why are you not or why are you disquieted within me? Remember, it's the same thing he was saying in 42, hope in God for I shall yet praise him the help of my countenance and my God, he's going to lift your spirits. When you get through the other side, you're going to go, wait a minute. Why was I cast down again? You get it? Why am I cast, why is my soul cast down and why is it disquieted? It's not as if you're going to forget the tough times, but you're going to get to the other side and say, praise the Lord, he did the battle. Wow. He worked it out. Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is a psalm when Israel is in a season of defeat. You should read this when you feel defeated. That's what this is about. And it's to the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. Do you remember who the sons of Korah? See, when you read the psalm by the, the sons of Korah, you know what? Your heart should swell up with Uh, happiness and gratefulness, because when you see sons of Korah, you think, oh, the marvelous grace of God. Why? I told you last week, because there were three sons of Levi. One was Kohath. Remember that? And Korah was the grandson of Kohath, and he got involved with some buddies who weren't great buddies, and they got 250 men together, and they challenged the authority of Moses and make a Long story short, they got swallowed up by an earthquake. Remember that? But he had descendants this Korah did. And these descendants actually became the people who were charged with worshipping in the tabernacle. God still used them. So every time you see this, it's like a note or a chord of grace. Wow. So here, to the chief musician, a contemplation sung after a defeat of the sons of Korah, would you just go, wow, grace, all throughout the Bible. We've heard with our ears, oh God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days of old. I really believe the fathers with the mothers are responsible to keep telling their kids about the glories of the father. Everything that he's done, he's done in the Bible, of course, but then show and talk to them about what he's done in your families and tell them over and over again. I think it's our way to do that. And if there's no father in the home, then mom, do it. Just keep telling the kids about the deeds that the Lord did to get you where you are today. Here in the life of Israel, he drove out the nations with his hand, But them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, cast them out, for they didn't gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arms save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. that's really cool, if you know the story of Joshua. Joshua was charged with taking the people into the promised land, but what's fascinating about that story is, is that God told them they'd have to still go in and fight. I'm giving you the promised land. Well, great, Lord, we're going to walk in and open up our apartments. No, that's not what the Lord said. He said, you're going to go in and you're going to fight, and you're going to knock them out of there. Well, that's interesting because if you have to fight, you have to be really dependent upon the Lord because fighting's no fun, right? And so they did do that. They gained possession, and then they turned around, and this psalmist said... And it wasn't by your own sword, it was by your help. We participated, but you did the work. Get that? It's fascinating. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. Folks, if you don't think grace is in the Old Testament, well, you're wrong. (laughs) There it is again, it's just popping out everywhere. There's the grace of God. You're my king, O God, command victories for Jacob. Uh, through you, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God, we boast all day long and praise your name forever. In the time of impending defeat, when the people are up, or the enemy is up against the wall. Everything's crowding in. What is it that this psalm is telling you to do? Don't depend upon your own abilities and resources. Of course, he's given you your smarts and your intellect and your compassion, and you are to use those faithfully, but don't separate all of that from what you know to be true that the Lord has granted you this. And since he's granted you whatever he's granted you, use it for the Lord. And if he hasn't given you great intellect or great wealth or great circumstances, well, see, that's all even the better for the Lord to shine and to work and to make himself known. God confounds the wise. I hate to say it because I'm one of them by choosing the foolish of things of the Lord or the world, you know, whose favorite verse that was Cory Ten Boom, Tenboom. Ten Boom. If it was good enough for Cory Ten Boom, it's good enough for us, right? <laughs> the Lord takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So here you see this person who's writing this, they the sons of Korah, one of them, uh, or maybe they're just singing it. And, It's in a time of defeat, and they're saying, but we're going to trust in the Lord, even though the circumstances look terrible. And now he switches. He says, but you have cast us off and put us to shame, and you do not go out with your armies. You make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken up spoils for themselves. You've given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. I mean, this looks really tough. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. This is the crisis that Israel finds themselves in. Verse 13, you make us a reproach to our neighbors, scorn and derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me and the shame of my face has covered me. Sounds like a great psalm, doesn't it? Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but watch, here it is. Here's the pivot. This is what's happening in the middle. You're leading me with your light and truth. Goodness and mercy follow me. But in the middle of this circumstances, this is the way I feel, is what the psalmist is saying. And again, I think he's not in his flesh yelling at God. He's just being real. I'm not one of those pastors that say you should yell at God and scream at God and do all that. I think that's not the right thing to do. I think you can be honest with God. And still be respectful. And that's what I think he's doing here. If, by the way, if you've flown off the handle and gotten mad at God, there's forgiveness. So you've, you're forgiven. So d- don't feel condemned by what I said. But I just wouldn't give that counsel. But anyway. But we have not forgotten you. That's the point. We haven't forgotten you. Nor have we f- dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not per- turned back. Nor have our de- steps departed from your way. You've severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us up, covered us with the shadow of dead uh, death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? There would be no hidden sin with you. You'd know our secrets. He knows the secrets of the heart. Are you running from God from something? Or is there something like unforgiveness or bitterness or fear or um worry in your heart that you're trying to conceal from God? And you know whether you're doing that or not. I know whether I'm doing that or not. If if it is, just let me tell you, he knows about it, okay? So he knows about that thing, which is which is fine. And he wants you to the path uh, on the path to spiritual health, and the first thing to do is admit it and get it out in the open, and talk to the Lord about it. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. What an interesting verse. Romans 8, 36 and 37 quotes this. Uh, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And why Paul uses it in Romans 8 is because even when you feel like you're being killed all day long, the Bible tells us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He still loves you, and he does love you. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, don't cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget your affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. You think whoever's writing this psalm isn't in the pits? He says, my soul is in the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help, and watch this, and here it comes. Here is the key. What happens when you feel like this? And we do feel like this sometimes, correct? Pray to God and pray the right way. If you prayed this way, oh Lord and redeem us according to what we deserve. Uh-oh. The Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the, all uh, the soul that sins shall surely Sorry, that's tough to say. Die. We don't want to pray according to God's justice or God's, you know, uh, according to, well, not according to God's justice, but according to what uh, we have earned. We want to uh, pray according to the mercies of God. Fling ourselves on the mercies of God. What does mercy mean? Just always remember this mercy means withholding what. You do deserve. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. Mercy is withholding from you what you do deserve. Oh Lord, have mercy upon me. I feel like this. I'm not feeling this great. I need your mercy. My soul is in the dust. My body is in the ground. I mean, I'm on the ground, uh, you know, crying. I need your mercy to come up. That's when you feel defeated. Well how about this go to psalm 45 a beautiful psalm the first part is probably in the near fulfillment is about some sort of bride excuse me groom <laughs> I get them backwards better not get them backwards right a groom maybe it was solomon maybe it was hezekiah but whatever the first part of this psalm halfway through the psalm is all about the glory of the groom The one, the man who's going to marry the bride. And in the longer, farther fulfillment, this clearly is a messianic psalm. So even though it's probably talking about a real person, it's always also got a far fulfillment in that it's also speaking of the Messiah. And then the back half of this, this is so great, is the bride. And who's the bride? It's us. It's the church. So we're going to see how we're to respond to the glories of the groom. Yes, see the one Jesus and how to love him and how to respond to him. So watch this to the chief musician set to the lilies, some sort of song that they all knew some, because it's in here several times, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. And you're going Grace. And then it says this, the first thing that you should know between the husband or the groom and the bride, it's a song of love, a song of love. So check this out. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. And I would just stop you right there. What is the theme of our lives? What's the theme of your life? If somebody knows you, would they say, oh, wow, man, does that person know the Lord and is known by the Lord, man, is that person, you can just tell how solid and stable they are. You can see how they feel loved by the Lord. Or would they say, man, this guy is such a great guy. He knows all about sports and Ohio state and stuff like that. Would they say stuff like that? Or, or, you know, he loves, you know, to, to hang out, uh, to do the, you know, golf course, Or he loves to, you know, uh, soup up his cars, and that's what he's all about. Well, those are all okay things, but don't you want your theme of your life, the the main theme of your life, to be loved and to love? That's this guy. My heart is overflowing with the good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready rider. I mean... The, the theme here, or the, the, the thing that you notice is, you, I don't know if you know, you, anybody ever tried to write a song? I got nothing. A poem, nothing. You couldn't do any of that. And some people sit down and just, just pump them out, right? That's because their heart, God has put in their heart this stuff that comes out in creativity, right? Anybody like that? Come on. Okay. (laughs) Okay, good, good, good. I see some people pointing at other people. That's good stuff. But here's the point. The point is this one's been touched by the Lord and the Lord is so there in the person's life. It's just ready to flow out. Watch this. Here's the Messiah or here is the King. You are fairer. You're beautiful, more beautiful than the sons of men. Now, what do you know about Jesus? you know from Isaiah, there was, he was nothing to look at. He was just an average Joe. That's what Isaiah tells us. He was nothing about him that you would go, whoa, Saul-like, man. He looks good. Should be in, you know, GQ or something. That's not what you would say. You'd just say a normal guy, normal Joe. There's nothing about him. And yet, here we see that the Messiah is fairer than the sons of men, more beautiful, so it can't be physical. But what is it? Look at this. Grace is a poured upon your lips, the way he speaks to people. It explains and tells you lots of what's going on in the gospel because in the gospel, you just see the stories, but you don't hear and see how Jesus talks or the character behind how the Messiah speaks to people. Grace was poured upon his lips. It just... Grace just came out. When he spoke, it was grace. When he said to the women go or to the woman, go and sin no more. It wasn't like Ugh. it was that controlled, elegant, majestic, powerful, beautiful speech that had authority but submission. Do you get what I'm saying? That knew who he was, but didn't lord it over people. Loved people and told them the truth and can do it because he was graceful and it was pouring out of him. It was poured upon his lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one. Where do we see where Jesus fought? Well, we see he, in a way fought at the cross. Now, he gave himself up, so he submitted, but he defeated, you get it, the powers of darkness, evil, and he had scars there. And where are you going to see Jesus fight again? If you've been to Israel, you've been to the very spot. You're going to see him fight right in the valley of Megiddo. But I want you to see this. In between the time of the cross and the time Of his millennial reign, oh, this is so beautiful. He fights for his bride. Boy, is that touching? He fights for his bride. Amazing stuff. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously. Why? Because he's filled up with truth, humility, and righteousness. Um, this is what Jesus' kingdom and administration will be. You know how you turn on the news right now and you go, that administration is so horrible. I know you do it because I read your Facebook pages. And then you turn on the other channel and they're that administration if you elect them, horrible, don't do it, they're the evil whatever empire. See, when Jesus comes to rule and reign, nobody's going to be able to say that. Because his kingdom will be based on real truth, real humility, and real righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. This is speaking, I believe, about uh, during the millennial reign enforced righteousness. There's going to be righteousness and he's going to deal with things in the millennial reign. That's something for another day. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. Sound familiar? Should. It's in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, speaking of Jesus. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Isn't that going to be great? When you don't have to turn on the news and worry about the administration, whatever administration you like or dislike. Therefore, God your God has anointed you, watch this, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Remember talking about the groom. The groom has this oil of gladness. Do you know you serve a happy king? Oh, I thought that was good. But seriously, I'm saying that because I think we sometimes are just so like, and we should be somber in one way, but he's a happy king. The oil of gladness has been poured out. I mean, imagine the problems he has to deal with. And he remains happy. That's in the administration. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia and out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. He's going to live in an amazing palace. And you're going to participate with him. Okay, shift. Verse 9. Now we're going to look at the bride, which of course is the bride to Solomon or Hezekiah, whoever is being talked about in the short term. But in the far term, this is us. This is a picture of us, and I want you to see the first thing. If you read this in the Hebrew, I can't read Hebrew, but the commentators talk about this. This woman, king's daughters, are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Just sort of out of the blue, here appears the queen. Because the focus is on the groom, and all of a sudden, here's the queen. That's interesting, and we could talk about that at length, about how that happens. But, you know, we as the bride, we want to give glory to our king here. What about this? Listen, O oh daughter, consider and incline your ear. Watch this. Forget your own people also in your father's house. What for a human bride and groom is supposed to happen? You're supposed to leave your parents. Some people never do that, and it screws up the marriage. Leave your parents, cleave to one another, and become one. That's sort of what's talking about, right? Forget your own people also, and you come into your father's house. And when we come into the heavenly family, it's not that we leave our blood family. No, we honor them. We... Still, you know, obviously love them and pray for them and all that sort of thing. But you've been put into a family here, folks. And this is a family. And we have the life of Christ in us. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. You see that? For Kim, uh, uh, You come and you become the person the king wants you to become. You see that? That the groom, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is interested in your beauty. He wants you to be beautiful like he is. I think that's amazing. Because he is your Lord, worship him. That's another response. Is that we come into a new family. We're thankful that he desires our beauty. And because of that, all of this, we worship him. That's what people do. And this is really a fascinating verse. And I'm not going very fast. And the daughter of Tyre, what does Tyre represent? It represents the world. They were great at merchandise and uh, making money. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. You catch that? Now listen, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us that the world's going to hate his followers. And yet, how do people in these times mostly come to know the Lord. It's through sharing the gospel. Would you agree? The gospel gets shared. The Holy Spirit does his work. People repent and come to know the Lord. They come through people who share with them, who love with them. For some reason, the Lord chooses us. And folks, (laughs) quit shooing away people that don't believe like us They want to come with a gift. Why do they want to give you a gift? Or why did they, why is a gift given here? Is because here the people of Tyre knew she was getting married to the king. And so wanted to present a gift. Are you getting it? In one sense, we know that the world's going to hate us, but in another sense, Our lives are a sweet savor of the life of Christ, and people are going to come, which means there are going to be people who come into your life, hopefully, if you don't live in a Christian cocoon, like many of us do, who are going to come, and they're not going to believe anything you believe. Like, for instance, ooh, I'm going to get in trouble here. You might even have somebody, folks, Where else would you want them to go than with you who doesn't believe in pro-life? I get what you're saying, but listen, don't shoo them away. How else are they going to know? It's astounding to me. You're going to come over here and people are going to approach you and come around you. Some, not all, and they're going to have a different sexual orientation than you. Don't shoo them away. Get to know them. Love them. Love them. Share the gospel with them. That's what this is saying. The world is going to approach you, and the reason they're going to approach you is because of the relationship you have with the king. They might not even say it. There's going to be people who come to you who might even, oh, be in a different political party Oh, more. Don't shoo them away. It's astounding to me How in the world are non-Christians ever going to believe what you believe until they surrender their life to Jesus Christ? How? Here, I think this is a great place for that. The daughter of Tyre is going to come with a gift. Why? Because she knows she's getting married. The bride's getting married to the king. Your life is going to be the smell of death To some people, but the smell of the great aroma of Christ to others. And when they come, where would you rather have them come? To you who has the answers. Get it? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, the rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her shall be brought to you. you, What's that all about? Old Testament saints? Not the church age saints, but maybe the Old Testament saints, maybe the tribulation saints. The virgins, her companions who follow her shall be brought to you with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought, they shall enter the king's palace. And instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. Here it is. I think what the bride's function is, here's the bride's function, is to bring many sons and daughters to glory. You want to know what the function of the church is? You don't have to go pay a $20,000 marketing study. Just do Acts 2.42 and point people to Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to do his work and have many sons come to glory. There's the function of the church and disciple people to do that. I'll make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. That's what we're to be doing, praising the Lord forever and ever. Isn't that a beautiful psalm? You could look through that more and uh, keep getting lots of things uh, over and over from that. Psalm 46. God is the refuge of his people and the conqueror of the nations written to the chief musician, a psalm of the songs of Korah. What do you think of when you think of Korah? Grace, amen. And it's a song for Alamath, a young lady, okay? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Uh, Even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. How about this one, folks? Are you feeling this right now? There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle uh, of the Most High. In other words, God is our river of joy God is our river of joy. God is in the midst of her, verse 5. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. Isn't that wonderful? At the break of dawn, new morning, new beginnings. Mercies are new every morning. God's help comes. It may, there might be a dark time in your life, a, a tough time in your life, but there's mercy coming. The nations rage. verse 6. The Kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. Watch this. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. That word there means strong tower. Look down in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. That means strong tower. Uh, Look at verse 1. God is our strength, or excuse me, our refuge and strength. That just means sort of God is our strength and our place where we're protected. It doesn't necessarily mean strong power, but I want you to know this, and I want you to write this down. Warren Wiersbe says this, and he gives us these verses. The reason God strengthens or shelters us, the reason God shelters us is to strengthen us. And you could look in 29 verse 11, 68 verse 35, and 71 verse 7, he shelters us to strengthen us. In other words, Psalm 46 is a poem because we see strong strength, refuge, strong tower, strong tower. It's a poem to tell us that we're to run to the strong tower. And he will strengthen you when you feel weak. That's the point of that psalm. Isn't that great? Now go on to Psalm 47 to the chief musician, the psalm of the son of Korah. What does that make you think of? Grace. Yes, keep saying it. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. Now, I just want to take a little time out and go back to the prior psalm. Look at verse 10 of Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Now, for you stressing people you people who like to be anxious. I'm a worrier, so I'm including myself in that group. You know what that phrase means in the Hebrew, be still? Take your hands off. Go like this. Quit clutching everything so tightly. Relax is what the Lord's trying to tell us there. Be still and know that I am God. There's a time to be still. But then there's also a time, look at verse 1, Psalm 47, to clap your hands and to stomp and to shout. Not necessarily stomp and to shout, but if you want to do that, sure. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of trump, uh, triumph. Watch this. Just say it. For the Lord Most High is awesome. In the King James, I believe it's terrible. It doesn't mean what you think it means when you hear terrible or what I think it means. It means awesome. It means awe-inspiring, full of awe. That's what that means. He is a great king over the earth. He'll subdue the peoples and the nations under our feet. He'll choose our inheritance for us. You could look 1 Peter one four and explore that more. The excellent of Jacob, whom he loves. Now see, there's another note of grace because who was Jacob in the Bible? I mean, think of Jacob, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But remember, Jacob and Esau... They grew up together and they fought all the time. And do you remember, Uh, uh, you know, they were twins. Do you remember that? And as twins in the womb, remember Jacob jostled or grabbed the heel of his brother and, you know, tried to come out first and all that sort of thing. So Jacob's name actually means manipulator or supplanter or one who deceives. And... You know, that sort of kept going because remember when uh, Esau and Jacob's dad died, he tries to gain the blessing, tries to get in there. In other words, Jacob had some s- manipulation in him. <laughs> and what's interesting here is through these Psalms, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the writer, is calling himself the God of Jacob. Jacob. The excellence of Jacob. Isn't that amazing? That God can even take a deceptive and manipulative person, like really all of us are, and associate with us by the blood of Jesus. Well, look out. Look what else. Verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Get the theme of this one? For God is the king of all the earth. He's the king of little king, little k, kings. Sing praises with understanding. Isn't that funny? Isn't that great? Don't just sing babble. Man, there's something about those hymns, folks. You sing those hymns and those words are calling up to God and the things that he's done And you got a nice tune going to it, and your voice just, you know, guys like me have a bad voice, but there's that one little area where you just can kind of plug in because you know it, and you can just sing away, and it's all great theology, sings with understanding. God reigns over the nation. He sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is uh, greatly uh, exalted. Um, this is another one that you give God, uh, you know, credit for the things he's done and not boasting in any of our abilities, but sing praises to the Lord. All right, we'll do one more. Psalm 48, a song, a Psalm of the sons of Korah. You're never going to see this the same, are you? It's all grace. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, in his holy mountain, he's great to be praised. In his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Now think about it, Uh, David established Jerusalem as the capital he beat the Jebusites out and he, he makes them the capital and then he brings the ark to Jerusalem and it becomes the city of the great king and the Lord's chosen Zion. And remember, if this is set in the background of the Assyrians coming against Jerusalem, wow, this is a song praising the Lord and greatly to be praised and looking there upon that disputed territory right there on the mount that the Assyrians couldn't capture. And he's saying, in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, it's beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. You know what's striking is when you're at the Dead Sea, I don't know, I forget how far away it is, 25 miles maybe, maybe something in there, maybe a little less actually. And you start inward, so westward. Your bus doesn't go like this. It goes, whew, And it chugs along because you're going way up. And you get to Israel, or excuse me, you get to Jerusalem, and it's way up there. It's up on a hill. It's the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He's known as a refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. And this might be the other people looking at Jerusalem, the other kingdoms, wishing they had it. They were troubled, they hastened away. Fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness. When was the last time you sat down, I sat down, we sat down, And just thought about the loving kindness of the Lord. Do me a favor. Look up the word hesed. Google it if you have to. That's the word right there. H-E-S-E-D. Sometimes it's spelled with a C at the beginning. But whatever. Go and look at that word. It's so magnificent and marvelous to describe the Lord. They can't get anything in the English that's comparable. It means so many things. It's so multifaceted. But one of the things that... Has said, is it's God's loving kindness. And the psalmist in Psalm 63 says this, so you know it's fantastic because we all will protect our lives at any cost, right? But the psalmist says this your loving kindness is better than life. He had come to the place as he thought upon seeing what God did and does and will do that he could say your loving kindness Lord your patience with me your love towards me your desire for my my beauty we read it earlier You, you desire that I'm beautiful Lord when you're the beautiful one you want the best for me you're good to me I mess up I sin and you've got that covered I'm fickle I go off, I forget about you. I don't give you credit. And you welcome me back and you keep welcoming me back because you are loving kind and it's better than life. That's in the midst of your temple according to your name O God. So is your praise to the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments walk about Zion and go along around her. Look at, this is pretty cool. It's as if they're saying, you know, whoever's writing this psalm, it seems to be in verses 8 and 10 here, pilgrims who know of the victories that accompanied the Jewish people by the Lord, and he worshiped in a proper response to the mercy of God, and then it's almost like in 12 through 14, the pilgrims are now on a tour like we are when we go to Israel of the city of Jerusalem and you walk about Zion and you go all around her and you count her towers. That's really interesting, by the way, because in Isaiah thirty-three eighteen, it says that the Assyrians counted the towers of Jerusalem ready to attack. But here now, they're counting after the victory and going, wow, look what God did. He saved us. Walk about Zion and go all around her. counter towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that, watch it. Here it comes again. That you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. You, you get what this is? The church's greatest enemy is not from outside. It's from within. That we would be apathetic towards the things of the Lord. That we would be apathetic in growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now watch this. That we would be apathetic in bringing up our children and telling them about the deeds of God. That's where the weakness comes. I don't know. Listen, we, we're just a little fellowship in the middle of, or not in the middle, but in a faraway place, a little sliver of southwestern Pennsylvania. And we don't have a big church, and we, we don't care about numbers, but I don't know if you noticed today, but did you see how many young people were here? Half the church was young people. Which is really cool. That's awesome. But I'm about ready to say something that might tick you off. Some of these kids, their parents aren't here. I know I'm going to get in trouble for this. But you know what the number one factors for people following the Lord is? Young people. It's whether their parents Do. Now the Lord can do anything and will do anything. Some of you didn't have parents that were great and you're following the Lord and praise the Lord. But that's not the intention. The intention of them is to have all families being here. Not that I'm picking for myself and in numbers, not that. Go to another church if that's where it is. But go together. And I know some people couldn't do it, so don't feel bad. But what I'm saying is, is the, are we rowing in the same direction as a family? Half the time, I think sometimes kids want to be led and there's no one there to lead them. And that's in a two-parent home. And I'm talking spiritually. And so I'm not putting anybody on a guilt trip, but here's what we have a responsibility to do is to raise up the next generation in Christ, if the Lord tarries. And I don't know about you, but I want to be serious about that. And I see it all throughout the Bible, is that there's a weakness within, and that's that we're not telling our young people about the deeds of God and his plan. And quite frankly, not making it exciting. Now you're saying... Well, you don't have to make it exciting. Well, you're right. It is so exciting. It's the most exciting thing ever. But the kids want to see a dynamic, living, vital, vibrant, Holy Spirit-filled relationship amongst the parents or parent. So here's what we're going to do. We'll stop at Psalm 48 (laughs) before I get in more trouble. But I don't think so, folks. I think we're called to this. Here in this little place, let's just do what God called us to. That's why we're so passionate about narrow way. And one of the things we're passionate about is we want to figure out how we can do narrow way for the parents Now, we're probably not going to do that, but even at the end this year, we had more resources for the parents. And i would tell you what, if you were here for the graduation, Beck's reminder to the parents was powerful. It stuck with me as his parent. So let's not fail here. Let's pour our lives out for the Lord first. Yes. And whether we're old or medium old or whatever we are, wherever we are, may we tell the next generation of the deeds of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I just do, I pray and I, come here this evening, and I I just pray, Lord, that by your love and mercy and grace, there would be a great outpouring of your spirit here, Lord, before you come back. And many would come to know you in real and saving ways so that, Lord, there'd be sort of just an awakening here, right? And may it start right here in southwestern PA that we would call what we do sin, you know, if we sin, that we would mourn over our own sin, that we would be people of praise and prayer and service and love until you come back. Lord, help us because it's so easy to get involved in the things of the world or to be Defeated by an enemy that's right at the gate. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.